0: Our text this morning is Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Lord willing, next week we will finish the book of Exodus. There's 40 chapters, so you might be wondering how we're going to pull that off. Uh, but but we're, going to, we're going to cover a lot of material next week. But before we get there and get to the end of Exodus, where God's presence comes down in a cloud in the tabernacle we want to ask and seek to answer the question this morning, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel? Exodus has shown us the story of God saving a people, breaking their bondage, sustaining them, entering a covenant with them. And now we see a side of God towards Israel That thus far we haven't seen as clearly when Israel has broken the covenant, made a golden calf, began to worship a false god, and yet Moses, their mediator, begs and pleads with God to forgive them, to not leave them, to keep His promises to them. And the Lord hears Moses' cries and agrees, I will stay with my people. But then last week we ended with Moses next saying something different, saying, Lord, I just don't want you to stay with us. I want you to show me your glory. And God tells Moses that the only way God can draw near and be near to Moses as a sinner is for God to protect him with his hand. He says, Moses, I'll hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I will pass by you, and I will protect you from my holy presence. But then, as I'm passing by, I'll remove my hand so you can see the back of me as I go away, and I will proclaim, I will declare my name to you. I will tell you who I am. Moses, that's as good as I can do, because if you saw the fullness of who I am, you would perish. So in our text this morning, Exodus 34 verses 1 through 10, the Lord does what he said he was going to do in hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock and passing by and declaring his name. So let's read Exodus 34 verses 1 through 10 together. This is God's word. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up to me in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, literally, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." And the Lord said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. There's three things that we see the Lord do, or three truths I want to point your attention to in these verses this morning. And the first thing is this, we see that the Almighty descends. The Almighty God of the universe, the Creator, descends. The text says Moses obeys God. He cuts two new tablets of stone. He goes up Mount Sinai alone the next day. And then verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there. Don't miss that as high as Moses can climb on Mount Sinai, the Lord God is still higher and must descend to be near His people. It's the case here in Exodus 34 and everywhere else in the Bible because our Lord God is so much higher and greater than we His creation are. Do you remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11? What happened there? A group of people decide that they will build a tower to the sky to make a name great for themselves. They're disobeying God's command to be fruitful and multiply and spread out and fill the earth. And the Lord, in order to see this monstrous tower that they're building, has to come down from above to see their plaything. Do you remember Psalm 2 where it says that the kings of the earth, the kings and the rulers of the nations are gathering together against the Lord and against His anointed Messiah. And God sees the most powerful men and women of the earth gathered against Him. And what does He do? He chuckles to Himself. He laughs. Remember Job chapter 38 where Job questions the Lord and the Lord responds to Job and says, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you remember what Isaiah chapter 40 says where it asks, who did the Lord consult?" Who made God understand? Who taught God the path of justice? Who taught God knowledge? Do you remember what God says through the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9? When God's justice is being questioned and Paul writes, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like This. Friends, the Lord is in the heavens and He does as He pleases because He is God and we are not. He is high and we are not. He is the Creator and the Owner of all things, including us. His power, His knowledge, His eternity cannot be quantified. His goodness and His justice cannot be questioned. His weaknesses and His foolishness is stronger and wiser than anything we could ever muster in this life, because He has no weaknesses. He has no foolishness. Friends, the bigness of God is the foundation of the Gospel of Jesus. If we have a view of God that is too small, then we will never find answers to the questions we are asking about the world and about the Word of God. If our God is too small then we will think too highly of ourselves and will proudly live as if we know better than He. Friends, the bigness of God should make us feel small. It should make us tremble. It should make us humble. The bigness and majesty and power of God who is on high should make us Our pride be destroyed because He is strong and we are weak and helpless. He knows all and we are ignorant blindly trying to make our way through life. He is holy and we are impure and guilty. He is high and we are low. He must descend from on high. He must lower Himself to be near Moses on Mount Sinai, but also to be near us. That is God. The God of the Bible is big and high and lifted up, and mighty, and majestic. And in our text, we see first that the Almighty descends. But He doesn't just descend and stop there. He descends for a specific purpose. We see, secondly, that the Almighty descends to declare His name. To declare His name. He's going to tell Moses who He is. He's already done this in part back in Exodus 3, the famous burning bush story. Moses had asked him in Exodus 3 if the people ask, Who has sent me to deliver them from Egypt, what shall I say? And God's answer is, I am who I am. I am who I am. A list of attributes cannot fully encompass and explain who I am, so instead I'll just say, I am. Because I'm God. I'm the central reference point for all else that is. Through the form that God took in Exodus 3 of a bush that is burning and yet never burns up, through the words that He spoke to Moses, He revealed part of His attributes to Moses. But here in Exodus 34, He begins to list those attributes more specifically. As God passes by Moses, who's hidden in the cleft of the rock, the Lord says... The Lord. The Lord. In your Bibles, the letters in Lord, L-O-R-D, will all be capitalized because this is not just saying a king or a ruler. This is a personal name, the covenant name of the Lord. Yahweh in Hebrew. Many of you have heard the name Jehovah. He's saying, this is who I am. Yahweh. Yahweh. And then he goes on to describe Who he is. He says, I'm merciful. I'm merciful. I'm compassionate. I'm sympathetic to weakness and need. When I see someone in need, I notice and I care and I move towards that weakness. He says, I'm gracious. I show favor to those who do not deserve it, I show grace to those who deserve only. Judgment. He says, I'm slow to anger. I'm long suffering. I'm patient. I have control over my anger. I do get angry, but I don't fly off the handle. My anger is not unrighteous. My anger is not unjust. It is totally good and righteous and justified, but I am slow to anger. He says, I'm gracious and merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He says, you want to know who I am, Moses? My love is constant. My commitment is constant. My self-giving nature is constant. They never end. I make promises and I keep promises. I can be counted on. You can take my promises to the bank. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am steadfast. My faithfulness is abounding. It never ends. My love will not fade or fizzle like the love that everyone else in your life shows you. Who makes promises and doesn't keep it? I'm not like that. I am faithful in my love. He says, I forgive iniquity, I forgive transgression, I forgive sin, which are three different ways of saying, A different component of sin. Iniquity is turning aside from what is right. Rebellion is defiance to a clear standard. Sin is a more general term for missing the mark God has set. And the Lord says the way that I show my love, the way that I show my mercy, the way that I show my grace and patience and slowness to anger is that I offer forgiveness. I offer forgiveness. Friends, is that not the kind of God that we love to think about, to dwell on, to sing about, to study? to speak to others about? A God who is loving and gracious and merciful and faithful and abounding in steadfast love and forgives sin. A God who shows mercy to the needy and grace to the undeserving and is patient with those who are slow and it shows persistent love to those who are difficult and a God who gives forgiveness to the rebel. Is that not a God that we hear about and praise God for? and hope wells up in our hearts because we recognize that we're jacked up sinners who are in need of grace and mercy and forgiveness. If it doesn't, there's a problem. That is the God of the Bible. These attributes give hope to a needy, messed up, foolish, imperfect people and that is our God. That is our God. That is the God that we preach and that we pray to. That is the God that we sing to and sing about. That is the God that we proclaim with our lives and with our words. That is the God that we share and we believe in and we rest in. The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and rebellion, And sin. But he's not done. He goes on in verse 7 and he says, But who will by no means clear the guilty? God says, I'm gracious, Moses, but I'm also just. I'm merciful, Moses, but I'm also righteous. I forgive Moses, but I also hold accountable. I'm slow to anger Moses, but I'm also righteously angry. Friends, any God that we believe in who is not both of those things simultaneously, Any God that we say we believe in who is only one of these without the other is not the God of the Bible, but is a God of our imaginations. Listen to me. You can make friends and influence people and gather a following and create energy In your community and in a church, by proclaiming the love of God without simultaneously proclaiming the goodness and righteousness and justice of God. But that God is not the God of the Bible. God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but, friends, God is also good. He is also just and holy and righteous. And if He were not those things, He would not be God and He would not be worth our worship. That is the only God that exists. There is no other God. And we must be careful that we don't skip and ignore God's clear word where God describes Himself to us. This is how God describes Himself. It's not like God is singing here about His love and mercy and grace, and then He just kind of sneaks in, and I'll judge the guilty too. No. God's not afraid to be righteous, because He's God. That's the only God there is. We read this text, and it's easy to get hung up on this language of generational judgments. The text says that he, God will know by no means clear the guilty and He says He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And we kind of scratch our heads and wonder what exactly does that mean? I want to encourage you don't get hung up on that. Friends, we will be held accountable in the new covenant for our own sin, not for our family's sins. I think what this verse is saying is simply that oftentimes the way that a family goes is also the way that children go. Not always, but usually that's the way that the world works. And that means that we should hear that and take seriously our commitment as parents and grandparents. Or maybe you're not a parent or grandparent, but you're investing in the next generation. We have to take seriously our commitment to the Lord because the next generation is watching And they're noticing what we care about and what we prioritize. They're noticing whether or not the faith that we say we have in God is real or if it's just a show that we put on when we're in a certain setting. Children will not be saved or lost because of their family, but because of their choices. And yet, their choices will often be influenced by our choices. But don't get lost on that. Because the primary point is this. God has descended, the Almighty has drawn near to Moses and has declared His name. He is revealing who He is, His character and attributes and person to Moses. And these attributes are repeated again and again and again in the Bible. In fact, if you were in Sunday school this morning going through the book of Numbers, these verses are actually quoted and referenced The Lord is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, the way that the Lord God is described is what He says about Himself here in verses 6 and 7. This is who God says He is. And who God says He is matters more than who we are. Say He is. If, there is a, if we have an issue with the way that God describes Himself in the Bible, the issue is with us, not with God. If God's clear Word describes Himself in a certain way, or God has acted in history in a certain way, and we do not like it, and we do not understand it, and we push back against it, and we chafe against it, the problem is with us, not with God. Because He is God. So I repeat, who God says He is matters far more than who we say He is. We can know God because the Almighty has descended to declare His name. But He does one more thing. There's one more reason that God descends. It's not just to declare His name, but last. He descends to declare His name and to be worshipped. And to be worshipped. When Moses heard God in the burning bush back in Exodus 3, he wasn't distracted by his phone or Facebook or the TV show or the football game or the community events. When God spoke to Moses back on the burning bush, in the burning bush, Moses wasn't thinking about the people of Israel or what was going on with his family or what happened to the sheep or what was happening tomorrow. Instead, when the Lord speaks to Moses and reveals Himself, His initial response is not to study or to sing to or to question God, but it is to hide His face and fall on the ground in fear and reverence. When Moses encounters the all-powerful, all-knowing, holy Lord of righteousness, he fell on his face, undone by His majesty, overcome by His glory, overwhelmed by His presence. When the Lord first appeared to Moses in this way, Moses recognized instantaneously that God is not one to be trifled with. He is not one to be made light of. He is not one to ignore or to neglect. He saw the power of God and he felt how frail and weak he was. He saw the might of God put on display and he felt his meekness. He saw of a holiness and perfection of God and felt His impurity. And here in Exodus 34, when the Lord passes by, Moses responds similarly to to how he did back in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. The text says that he quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. It's easy to just read over that verse to try to quickly get to the conversation Moses has with God in verses 9 and 10. But I believe wholeheartedly that what it says in verse 8, that Moses bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped, I think that that didn't just happen for a minute and then Moses was right on to asking God for something. I think that, that he lingered there with God. I think that that verse 8 lasted for a while. Moses sees and hears God. And he is silent and struck by God's awesomeness, which is the only proper response to being in the presence of God. When the holy God of the universe who has made us and sustained us and has created us for His glory, when He comes near to us, the most proper response is for us to shut our mouths and bow our heads and humbly lay on the ground. but what we're told today is that we need to have a happy, clappy experience with God. We we, we do. There's a place for praise. There's a place for dancing for the Lord. There's a place for clapping your hands and raising your hands and being excited about what the Lord has done. And yet, friends, part of worship is having a holy, respectful reverence before the Almighty God. Oh, that we would have a posture towards God like that. Oh, that we, when we opened up His Word in our quiet time or our Sunday school class or when we gathered to worship, had a posture towards God where we approach Him and we are marveling at who He is. Oh, that we would look past attendance and song choices and preaching styles and lunch plans and come to worship anticipating an encounter with the Almighty Lord of the universe. Friends, God has made us to worship Him. He's not made us to love the things He's created more than Him. He's not made us to be distracted with the things He's made more than Him. He's made us to be blown away at who He is. He is God. He is high and lifted up. He deserves our attention and our affection. But the God of the Bible who has made us for these things is grieved when we treat church and worship and the Bible as if they are all about us and not about Him. The holy God... I believe, is angered at our lack of reverence and humility and awe when we consider who He is. Friends, in the Bible, when God shows up, all who are near fall on their faces as they recognize His greatness and their unworthiness. And we would do well to plead with God to give us that kind of earnestness and reverence and awe when we consider God. Moses beholds God and falls on the ground to worship. And as he gathers his bearings, he remembers Israel. He remembers he is their mediator and he begs to the Lord. Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, will you go with us? Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Lord, show us mercy and grace and love. We don't deserve it, but will You give it to us? Will You take us for Your inheritance? Lord, will You fulfill Your promises to us? We know that You are able. God, You've declared who You are. We do not deserve it, but will You go with us? He cries out to the Lord and He pleads and begs for mercy. And the Lord says to him in verse 10, I will renew the covenant. I will go with you. I am going to blow your minds with the marvels of my power that will be put on display. All the nations, Moses, will know how awesome I am. God hears Moses' desperate plea and He commits to renew the covenant with Israel and fulfill His promises, not because they deserve it, but because He deserves glory. And because His reputation and His promise keeping and His faithfulness is at stake and He deserves all praise from every tongue. The Almighty descends to declare His name, and to worship, be worshiped by Israel. And He renews His covenant. But there's a tension. If you're reading the text carefully, if you're hearing God describe Himself, there's a tension that's left unresolved. There's a question that's begging to be answered, and that question is this, how can Yahweh, how can the Lord be just and righteous if he overlooks their sin, how can he be just and righteous if he overlooks their sin and he does not punish them and give them exactly what they deserve? How can that tension be resolved? And the answer is what Christmas is all about. The answer is Jesus. Jesus Christ, God the Son who willingly chose to be made low. To descend, who willingly chose to condescend to the cradle, to be born in a stable, to learn as a lad, and to live sinlessly for us. Jesus laid down his life. Jesus took our sin that we deserve to be punished for on himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could live at peace with God forever. Jesus came. God the Son came and bore our sin. Why? To Uphold the justice and the righteousness of God, who will by no means clear the guilty. That is why the angels sang on Christmas morning. That is why the shepherds marveled. That is why the wise men traveled. Because God the Son had taken on flesh to bring joy to the world, to display God's righteousness, to atone fully and finally for sin, and to solve the tension and answer the questions that are begging to be asked in Exodus chapter thirty. Friends, that is what Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday are all about. It's about Jesus who makes us rights with a holy and righteous God. Jesus is the answer to all the questions. Jesus resolves all the tensions. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, His person and His finished work put on display how what Exodus 34 says about God can be true of God. That is the gospel. That is the reason for this season. And yet, we must respond to it. And if God is moving in us and His Spirit is at work, then we will respond. The question to be asked in this text as we leave this sermon and move on to the next part of our service is, Do I know Jesus? Do I know this Lord? Is Jesus truly my Savior and King? Friends, if He's not run to Him by faith, believe and who He is and what He's done. Believe in and respond to Him. Marvel at Him. Behold your God, who was made low to dwell with us and defeat sin and death in our stead. Let us be a people who will run to Him, who will plead with God to wake us up, to move our hearts, to empower us, to live for Him. Let us pray that our worship will be worthy of such a Savior. Friends, whether your need this morning is saving faith for the first time, whether it's to repent of sin, to recommit your life, to be renewed, or whether your cry and your need this morning to the Lord is for heartfelt worship that is unashamed, let us respond as the Spirit leads. Because God has spoken. God has told us who He is. And God has come. Let us praise Him. And let us respond with fear and reverence humility, and praise. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace. Lord God, we acknowledge this morning that our Lord Jesus is merciful and gracious. Our Lord Jesus is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Our Lord Jesus makes a way for our sin and our rebellion and our iniquity to be forgiven. And yet our Lord Jesus is holy and righteous and does what is right. God, we praise You this morning for Jesus. We thank You for His humility. We thank You that He came and dwelt with us and took on flesh and became a man. We thank You that the Prince of Peace has come to bring joy to the world. God, we thank You that in our dark world You have sent a light. And I pray for every man and woman and boy and girl here this morning, Lord, that no one will leave today not knowing that they are right with Him. Not knowing that they have repented and believed and are committed to the Lord Jesus. God, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts, stir us up for You this morning. God, we pray that You will give us humility and reverence and repentance and faith. And we pray that Your name will be magnified because You are worth it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.